Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Crisp little clink there. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to get scissored? Whoa. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I realized that halfway through saying it, what that actually sounds like. I had no plans in coming in and saying that. Whoa. <laughs> wow. You just got some, some reality there. Well, anyway, we watched Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, we did. 1990, big year, follow-up from, what, Beetlejuice, right? I yeah, it was, it was after Beetlejuice, after Batman. It was after Batman. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Tim Burton wrote and directed it, co-wrote it with the writer of The Addams Family, Homeward Bound, the dog movie. Ooh, and there's a cat in there too, so Excuse down. me. <laughs> I know it is. The Incredible a- Journey. Yeah, The Incredible Journey and Nightmare Before Christmas. Fuck yeah. Do you want to listen to the trailer? Let's do it. should just come home with me. Joyce, I just saw this strange guy driving with Peg. Did you get a good look at it? Hi! Scissors. Whoa, that's a handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Those things are cool. Can I bring him to show and tell on Monday? He's a highly imaginative character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. <laughs> is there some special lady in your life? Full doctor, skewered kid. Just a scratch. The power of Satan is in him. I can feel it. Your All along, I felt in my gut there was something wrong with him. Hold me. I can't. You were saying that this was the writer who later worked on... Nightmare Before Christmas, right? Because Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas was... I came out in 93, but obviously they'd been working on it forever. Right. Well, Tim Burton produced that, and he's often like thought of as having directed yeah. it, but he did certainly have strong control over that movie. Well, when you just look at the style of it, mm-hmm. even just like the topiary and Edward Scissorhands, it's like, this is so the precursor for Halloween Town, in my opinion. Oh, definitely. Uh, fucking cool, though. So the genesis of Edward Scissorhands as like a concept came from a drawing by then-teenaged director... Tim Burton. I don't know if he was a director at the time. But he was a teenage. <laughs> then teenage, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it reflected his feelings of isolation and being unable to communicate with people around him in suburban Burbank. I feel like Tim Burton hair he is, is very pretty Tim Burton. Handy <laughs> yeah, too. yeah. But just that concept of like a gentle person with incredibly sharp hands, it's like super misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a little rough around the edges. Yeah, it's like a beautiful comedic take on the Frankenstein story. Yeah. And what's crazy is like this was one of those that I'd seen a bunch of times as a kid too, but hadn't really internalized and when the mm-hmm. first time that they mentioned that Edward's an automaton that it actually been <laughs> created by a guy I was like oh I just thought he was a total weirdo it was just <laughs> for some reason it's, for yeah, it's like a whole new thing but yeah the, the misunderstood kid he stays in this this crazy gothic mansion up on a hill which mm-hmm. is incidentally based off of the California Institute of the Arts which is Tim Burton's alma mater oh so really putting his life into this yeah. work <laughs> I, apparently so. he and danny elfman said that this is their most personal work that yeah. they've ever done in their lives and you can feel that coming from the movie totally. that this is a very personal was this the first time that he started being obsessed with johnny depp was this the beginning this of- was the beginning of that yeah. this was like his, his first collaboration with depp he did kill it speaking he, it. he totally was amazing <laughs> in it speaking of depp an extinct lobster-like sea creature called Cutinicella Deppi okay. is named after Depp because of its scissor-like claws. Mr. Deppi? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, old lobster, a, scissor hands. I had, a, I had a mega crush on Johnny Depp in this movie, and it's mm-hmm. one of those where you're like, what are you... You got a crush on Beetlejuice. You right, got a crush yeah. on. You like people with gross faces. Yeah, just real misunderstood Pasty. weirdos. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I guess it all makes sense in retrospect. But yeah, this was Vincent Price's last film role. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this, like, there have been a couple of movies that we've done where there are these iconic actors whose last film roles included, like, sad dying scenes yeah, where totally. they die. Yeah. Like, we were in uh, Soylent Green, Edward G. Robinson has, like, a real specific death scene. He was dying at the time. I mean, when you choose people that are 
very old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah part of it, it's movies. likely to have the peasant in the story that they're going to die. That's a <laughs> <Right>. good fucking point. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, I did a dive on Vincent Price for this week, and we'll get into that later, but definitely Tim Burton was hugely into Vincent Price growing up, and mm. it all worked out, because then eventually he got him in his movie, so. What a movie it is. Holy smokes. Let's talk about hands. Because hands are a very important part of this movie. Not Edward Scissor, just regular old... Regular old human hands. <laughs> and the evolution of them. They're fucking because rad, dude. You opposable could thumbs, hands. you could do a lot. Yeah, no, you could do a lot. Guitar, anyone? You pick things up. Can you <laughs> believe it? So primate hands have really small thumbs, and they have long curved fingers, which are really good for like knuckle walking and for grabbing onto branches and Trees stuff like and stuff, that. Yeah. Human hands have a much larger, more muscular, and mobile hand with a fully opposable thumb that's much bigger than any other animal on the planet. Some primates also have opposable toes, yeah, okay. I've seen and that. Uh, that helps with climbing and stuff like that. And we don't have that. So it's believed that like a few million years ago, a group of chimpanzee-like apes began throwing rocks and swinging clubs at adversaries. And that behavior wound up driving reproductive advantages for millions of years. Oh, my God. There's two fundamental hand grips that human beings have. Mm -hmm. There's the precision grip, which is a throwing grip. Okay. And then there's the power grip, which is like a clubbing grip. I see. And so, like, grabbing a sphere, like a rock or a baseball, and precisely controlling its release is, like, a really different grip from grabbing a cylindrical club in a way that absorbs the reaction force of an impact without releasing the club. Right, okay. Well, and you have, like, an outrageous amount of mini muscles and ligaments and shit in your hands. Right. That and like the way the metacarpals are actually built is yeah. very different from the way they are in primates because of the different uses that we want to have it for. So that's just humans in general, but then people that from a young age, maybe they train to use yeah. these things, baseball players. They develop really fine-grained motor skills. Yeah. Like high schools do these experiments to kind of show kids how important our opposable thumbs are, yeah. where they like tape their thumb to their hand, yeah, and then yeah. they're like, try opening a jar. Yeah. You know, like put put on a sock, totally. button a button on your shirt, like all these things that and they're just like, I can't try to jerk off with this, buddy. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to happen. Teenagers. <laughs> exactly. Worst time ever to do that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the more optimistic or maybe naive take on the power grip is that it's used for tools like a hammer. So are we okay. constructing things or are we breaking them down with clubs? I see. But so once you have a hand like this, uh -huh. there's so much more that it can be used for. So you consider like writing with a pencil, how hard it would be to do without a thumb. Oh, yeah. Totally. Like our hands weren't evolved to allow us to write. It yeah. was evolved to allow us to hold things. And then we used it for this other thing that allowed our brains to mature even more significantly. Yeah. So I think like our hand being so useful in so many different ways was evolved f to throw and beat things. Mm -hmm. But that same evolution led to all these other benefits that the natural selection didn't see coming. Yeah, totally. But that we but use it now. It's all building on each generation, right? Right. Well, that's interesting to think of it as being as a result of this particular chimpanzee-like family of apes that right. started just clubbing shit. And yeah. then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. But, like, there's a reason that a lot of robots are designed with hands or hand-like appendages, and it's because the hand is so adaptable to so many circumstances. Oh, yeah. And the another reason is that we've built a world for human hands. Uh -huh. So when it comes to, like, building a humanoid robot for the International Space Station, yeah. getting around the International Space Station is built for people with hands. Right, even just, like, opening a door. Mm -hmm. So in a way, like, the robot design is following human design, but it's also because the hand itself is such a versatile thing. If you look at, like, an x-ray of a bat or most flying animals, you see a bone structure that looks kind of similar to, like, long, thin fingers. Yeah, yeah. And so I like thinking of, like, a wing as, like, a type of hand right. with, like, connected flaps and just long, thin bone structure. The many ways a hand can evolve. <laughs> Let's give the hand a hand, shall Let's we? Give, oh, boy. Uh... We got there. <laughs> Okay, I didn't even know what the term topiary meant. I literally, like, when I was Googling this, I was like, you know, ornamental <laughs> chopping of trees. Ah, okay, because I've heard of bonsai, right? But bonsai is different. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so. Okay. 
Topiary is the art of trimming and growing hedges into beautiful designs. So it probably originated in ancient Egypt and Persia, but then of course, you know, it evolved elsewhere in Europe, but later than the Americas. It evolved in Japan and China, but it's practiced differently there. So bonsai is similar to topiary in the sense that, you know, it's it's all dealing with shrubs and stuff. Right. It's all dealing with it's these plants. Cutting. Yeah, exactly. But like bonsai's goal is to enhance and emphasize a plant's natural form of how it's going as opposed to just like cutting it and turning it into a different shape. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, it's the difference between being like, let's see how this goes and let me see if I can maybe urge it this way versus being like, fuck this, I'm going to... So anyway. One's like straight up sculpture and the other one is like growing a plant. Exactly. And seemingly understanding more about what actually happens with these plants. So maybe a little bit more respect is given there, but (laughs) because plants are alive, you guys. So the first to document topiary was this Roman by the name of Pliny the Elder. He was behind this natural history encyclopedia back in the day. And so topiary then spread throughout the Roman Empire. At the time, it was considered a status symbol by high society. Then during the Dark Ages, people living in monasteries and castles, they started carrying out the practice of topiary. You could, they would like shape some of the plants into religious symbols at the time. You can, mm. you can see some of these symbols in the background of uh, paintings from that period. It's like, we don't have clay, but we have these yeah, shrubs. Totally. That's and cool. I mean, and you know, you already have these big, you know, boisterous castles and mm. grounds. You might as well fucking shape some shit, right? I just like, this is like, the world is my canvas. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Totally. And then after the Dark Ages, topiary took on a more architectural style and it began to include like geographic shapes, animals. They'd have a lot of like cones and just not like, you know, circles and knots. Then during the Renaissance, it spread throughout Europe until it reached its height of popularity in the 1600s. And then when it went out of favor in the early 1700s, hundreds because people were then opting for more like wild natural looking gardens and this is like a societal aesthetic thing yeah that yeah. they pref- and tended again, to prefer to go back to natural stuff yeah and it, well because i think it was still more of a like high society thing as certain fads go yeah in there's out, like a pendulum like, to feds it's like yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> so then in the 19th century, Europeans returned to topiary, with, and that's also around the same time that North America started introducing it to their gardens. Then like in the mid-1900s, then they started using these like portable pieces that were made of creeping plants like ivy. So as opposed to these kind of dense evergreen plants, then they started having the ivy that they would kind of train all over. And you, you see this okay. in like old timey Victorian places where like the ivy's crawling up Covering the wall. The it buildings looks, it and looks stuff. really fucking cool. It Maybe it's over lattices really cool. or something like that. So like today there are three main types of topiary. There's traditional, which is just the straight up like ornamentally shaping freestanding trees and shrubs you can like a lot of times gardeners will just like freehand it i guess that that's what fucking mr scissorhands was doing Uh oh one thing to note though unfortunately edward scissorhands topiaries were not real they were actually made of armature Remember we uh, talked oh. about armature on uh, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. So in sculpture, armature is like a framework around which, you know, the sculpture is built. So mm-hmm. they had the wire frame underneath and then they would just like punch in artificial greens and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't like create a bunch of beautiful well, pieces. Well, like some of those things, like could you even shape stuff like that? Like if it was a real plant, like a dinosaur, like with the arms and everything, like is it doable? It totally is doable. It wow. just, it really depends on the kind of plants that you use. Well, you know, even with traditional topiary, they use, you can use these like frames. You can maybe like, you can shape stems and leaves and branches by like wrapping them around tree okay. stems and like supportive staffs and stuff like, like a coil. So like they, they would internally support maybe yeah. structures that would otherwise just break off yeah. on the branch. And, and there also are plants that are denser and better for this. Like I was saying, evergreens, that kind of thing. There's also, there's something called sphagnum. I don't, a sphagnum or a sphagnum. I don't know if it's like a or a good. Anyway, so there's this type, which is where you like prune plants that are growing out of this smagnum moss and so you can get these frames that are like filled with the moss and plants so there's like fast growing creeping plants like succulents and other greens that work well with this so that's what's interesting is depending on what you want to do you're gonna choose a particular type of plant because then it also has its own vulnerabilities especially if you're keeping something outside you want the kind of plants that can withstand the elements they can also mm-hmm. withstand the shearing process and stuff so like generally you don't want to clip outdoor plants in extremely cold or hot weather spring is usually a good time for this okay. which is why you I, i've kind of always associated that with a springtime thing too I yeah guess. i figured it was because all the leaves were coming yeah. out and it was like look at all the shit we're making right, and totally. not because like the branches are literally stronger that makes a lot of sense yeah 
Yeah. So they use like boxwood and yew. They're also they're often used for traditional shrub topiary. Then the final type is this trained ivy topiary, which we'd mentioned. That's like perhaps the most accessible because you can create something like this pretty pretty quickly. You can create like geometric shapes or animals, even corporate logos if you so choose. Oh. You can do like pyramids, balls, spirals, cones, birds. You can do Mickey Mouse, this kind of thing. Well, I was looking into some of the you know notable topiary gardens out there. There's Levens Hall and Topiary Garden in England, which features some of the oldest in the world. So I had never thought like, you know, I'm going to go check out a topiary garden, but... I want to. Yeah. But Fucking wait, why not? with the oldest ones in the world, that must be extra interesting. Like, how do they, do they maintain the same shape? Like, is it the same old plant? I think so. Wow. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. That's that would be, so cool. Well, because many of these plants require clipping only annually to retain their shape. Okay. So it'll like chill out. You go and maintain it every year. And, and you just kind of like trim it back and keep it going. So it so it's pretty <laughs> makes sense. But then I, I heard about this guy, John Brooker, who's in the UK. And he spent 10 years shaping a 150 foot long hedge into a giant green dragon. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. He said he was, quote, tired of looking at a straight hedge. It was pretty boring after a couple of years. And I thought I'd cut the top into some arches. And then I thought, what am I going to do at the end? Got to have a head on it. And then I thought, it's going to be a dragon. <laughs> so we did this without any help. We'll include these pictures on our Instagram. Instagram page but yeah it's fucking cool this whole it, it's an actual dragon that he just like clipped for this whole time his looks like it's maybe more it, instead of like the dense evergreen like piney style mm. it is that kind of like ivy I love this thing where it's like instead of having it be just a simple structure why don't we make it into something cool looking yeah like I was doing research on gargoyles recently because I wanted to know like the origin of what they were and it they weren't what I thought they were the technical definition of a gargoyle is basically a gutter that runs water from a rooftop right, outward. Right. And what's really common is turning those gutters into animal faces and so that the water rushes out of their mouth. Cool. So that's like just, why don't we take this basic structure that's actually required for a building and turn it into something cool looking? Yeah, and whether you have something that's just sitting on your lawn or you can also, these pieces you can have on your desk, right? Mm -hmm. You could do it very small. You see people that have like bonsai on their fucking yeah. coffee table Do they do topiary that small or is it like yeah. that more? Definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, because all the, the big scale ones are is just like a ton of frames, right? And whether they're like wire frames or wooden frames that you then, you know, kind of fuck with and we yeah. turn everything into art <laughs> i want to go into a hedge maze i want to do a hedge maze so. where all the walls are dragons <laughs> so edward scissorhands is an automaton and automatons are basically very early robots they're like super rudimentary chuck e cheeses Ugh. from like the da vinci era sure they used weights water or intricate clockwork systems of springs and levers to perform rudimentary tasks they were kind of like rube goldberg machines in the form of like a humanoid right. where it's like everything's happening inside like under a shirt okay, okay. kind of thing but it's like one wind of the clock or one drop of a ball will cause this series of events to happen right because edward scissorhands looked to me like he was a sort of one step beyond, or a couple steps perhaps beyond a nutcracker. Right. And they're even like in the movie showing like the last thing that he had was hands and that Vincent Price dies before he gets the chance to do the hands. Totally. But like all of these different stages of the earlier automatons as this old inventor is trying to like make a person. Were we also to assume that he would have like screwed off the scissors and then put on hands or was he just supposed to put some hands over the scissors? I, I got really confused at that time. <laughs> I think that it was supposed to replace the scissors. Right, because I was like... Because also, like, when he does that, Edward puts his scissor hands into the hands and winds up, like, completely destroying oh, them. Oh, right, of course. So, yeah. like, I can't imagine that that would have worked. That that was Slide the Slide him over like a glove. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We didn't even mention how much everyone's, like, hitting on Edward's scissor hands. Like, oh, oh I man. would love for you to... But, uh, I'm like... Do you want him to finger you with his scissor hands? I, I know. don't understand. <laughs> what do you it think? How do you think much? this plays out? When you get into the bed. What else can you do with those things? It's, yeah, like, it's like, destroy your insides. Yeah, what what, you fucking. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But earliest examples of automatons go back to like Da Vinci's era and stuff. And he had sketches of an artificial man in the form of an armored Germanic knight, which was powered by an external mechanical crank. And it used cables and pulleys to sit, stand, turn its head, cross its arms, and even lift up its metal visor. 
<laughs> and then in 2002, a NASA roboticist created his own version of Da Vinci's automaton based off of like the sketches that still survived, and it was fully functional. And so Da Vinci may have been one of like the world's first roboticists. Wow. Back in the 1400s. That's cool. Yeah. And you said it just did some sort of rudimentary task. It could stand, it could sit, right, it could okay. lift its visor. <laughs> but right on. but it was like an actual moving robot that would do it all on its own. We just love the idea of artificial intelligence, don't we? Yeah, we we've love been trying to do it. That power. There was even a potential example of an automaton from like the third century, mm -hmm. but it was like an automaton dove. Legends say that it flew 200 meters. They think likely it was like one of those. Kind of those airplanes on a string where they have like a little motor and you hang them from your ceiling and they'll keep going around right. in a circle right, over right, and right. over again because they can keep powering themselves. Yeah. So this may have been able to like kind of flap its wings enough and like hang from a wire to be able to move. These are like the missing links, right? This right. is like the step. Tw it's still very uncanny valley because it's more machine than it is. Certainly. Human. And it's like they haven't even entered into the idea of consciousness or anything like that. Very no. steampunky in its vibe. Very feel, steampunky. Right? Oh, such a cool style, but like it is. old timey, but being like, ah, I'm going to tinker away. I've got all these gadgets and gizmos. I know. And just making everything out of like bronze and gold and oh, stuff. Yeah. Like I want one. <laughs> want one to greet the people who come in. Welcome. Come forth. Come to my 17th century home. <laughs> point they're in graveyards in this movie right they're just they're, yeah there's well, some macabre moments there's a very macabre is, is there a graveyard like on the premises i think so eddie's place I remember seeing this and being like ah oh, it's again a very nightmare before christmasy moment mm. i felt anyway i yeah. wanted to look into craziest graveyards guys strap in let's start beyond the pyramids where are we going <laughs> that's right <laughs> Let's let's move to the Philippines, shall we? Oh. Now they had an ancient practice of basically mounting these wooden coffins on cliff faces or alongside the faces of mountains. They oh. were often these coffins were often carved by the deceased prior to their death, which is really fucking weird. That is creepy as fuck. Really well. creepy. Like, here we go. Let me, yeah, working Who knows every how long day I have. a little bit on I hope I finish it before oh. it's time. That's yeah, very efficient, isn't it? But now, conventional wisdom suggests that this was done to keep wild animals away, but, you know, wooden coffins are going to yeah. deteriorate over time and collapse to the ground eventually anyway, so it's kind of even more gross, and you're just like... <laughs> like a body falls about. from the fucking mountain. Yeah, eventually it's like... <laughs> the wood breaks. <laughs> now, in the Sichuan province in China, where the Bo people lived several centuries ago, they also attached a number of coffins that were carved from hollowed-out tree trunks to the steep sides of several mountains. Some archaeologists believe that the Bo thought that this would make it easier for the gods to collect their spirits. Oh, like Easy getting access. closer up to yeah. heaven? Instead of having to, you know, dig. <laughs> yeah, or like come all the way down from that mountaintop yeah. and then dig? Come break, on. Break into the mausoleum, that kind of thing. <laughs> so they've had similar practices in Indonesia and otherwise, but what, what would you think about that if we just had like a cliff of, of corpses and That's coffins? an interesting concept. I, I kind of like... You get it, right? I like, do I get, get it. it. I get it. Like, you know, you look up and you kind of remember them. It's like even more. It's like a Mount Rushmore of your ancestors. Yeah. But. Well, that'd be cool. But then you wonder if it is just for the utilitarian reason of like, you don't want animals to get at it. Or right. You, I mean, I don't know if they were looking at it as being like, and then every time you look up, you'll see. You know, right. Grandma right. up on or, the side. Because decomposition happens anyway, I don't know. I, I, I guess like. For the first 10 or 15 years, that's the most common time that a family member would go to visit yeah. a deceased loved one. Yeah. So maybe it like allows them that time before. <laughs> yeah. You're just <justifying. laughs> like, I'm like seeing his, the care start. He's like, I don't know like, where I'm going. I don't know where this. I'm going with this, but I, I, you know. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with easier for the gods to pick up their spirits. Yeah, that, that sounds makes, a little bit more cuckoo kachoo like makes ancient sense style, to me. right? Yeah. yeah. Make it easy. Don't come down all the way from your loft all the way to the <laughs> yeah yeah we, <laughs> the ground below we're doing you a favor gods totally. so then in paris france there's the catacombs which is this huge underground collection of bones this began in the late 18th century when the parisian government decided to exhume a massive grave at the center of town and then they transferred all of these fucking bodies to the abandoned mines that were below the city oh. how many bones how many bodies Six million bodies. What? So the catacombs, yeah, they're open to the general public, apparently. How they many get things like, in history involved six million dead people. <laughs> so specific. Dangerously specific. <laughs> yeah, but like 
thousand people visit these catacombs every year, and most of the time it's you know no one gets lost. But I, uh, uh, apparently there's been some some people that have been trying to get really deep down in there, but then you get fucking lost because you're in right. this underground city, basically. Ancient. Yeah, but no I, light. For some reason, and I'm probably taking this from like video games I've played. I I thought they were like sewer like the catacombs and now that i'm thinking it through it's like why would that be where you would put dead bodies and realizing like they're old mines yeah that's really and also that they hadn't initially thought of putting them there they they just like exhumed a mass grave i'm not sure if it was because they were like what they wanted to do to the mass grave or why they felt they need to put them there but exhuming a mass grave and then just relocating the bones it's, it can't be to find the murderer. I know. Okay, then off the coast of Florida, there is the Neptune Memorial Reef. And this is 40 feet below water. And it's basically just these massive structures that are made from a combination of cement and cremated human remains. Ooh. So these ashes and the cement, they... they create these memorial plaques with the names of quote-unquote residents affixed to the structures so like the whole look of it is this kind of underwater city with roads and benches that divers can actually sit on so it's like these sculptures that are not only there to you know memorialize dead people but also they provide homes for marine life and stuff like that that's amazing is that fucking cool i never even heard of such a thing a grave that's also a reef yeah that's such a great idea totally and then it's you know actual structures too it's not just kind of amorphous blob reefs it's like actual you know with like a whole underwater water city yeah that's like a halfway step to that concept where where you can like plant your dead body into a tree and then you plant the tree and And that's like like new school shit that's really new stuff but it's kind of like a halfway step to that process where it's like you're using the decomposition to feed more wildlife totally but also it's like a whole fucking city under yeah totally well and it's also like how much space are we taking up with just like rotting carcasses in the ground i mean I think there's a lot of a I've noticed a lot more of a change in terms of what people want to do whether it's like just straight up cremate me or Mm. yeah this tree pod thing it's like I want to give back to the earth that I've taken so much from right might as well yeah if you believe that you know the soul doesn't really exist in the traditional form and that what you are is elements that can then like do more good for the world then you're going to be somebody who donates organs and wants to decompose in a way that creates more life. But I also think that a lot of people are so weirded out by just the idea of their own mortality, yeah. let alone the fact that, like, you mean my body's going to decompose? No, I'm going to stay in this coffin forever. It's like, yeah. you're going to decompose anyway. You can either, you know, do the mummy route and try mm-hmm. to keep it all preserved or just be like, no, I'm made of fucking carbon and all right. these elements and, you know. And other things need that. Yeah. And they can take little bites of me. <laughs> A little bit more macabre here. There's the Sedlik ossuary, which is in the town of Kutnahora in the Czech Republic. And this ossuary contains the bones of between 40,000 and 70,000 people. Some of the bones have been used to create coats of arms. Some Whoa. of the bones have been made to create this chandelier that's constructed from at least one of every bone in the human body. Basically, everywhere you look, there's furniture that's made from human bones. That's so cool. It's cool, but the, it's fucking weird, man. It is it's, really weird. And like looking at the pictures, it kind of looks fake, right? You know, we have so many things oh. that we make out of bones uh-huh. you know, for Halloween. But it's always like stuff. plastic and stuff. Totally. And it's it, like, is that real? Yeah. Know. But the idea of like a chandelier that's made from each of the individual, like there's some kind of celebration of human anatomy happening there that I think is pretty cool. I mean, we have the bodies exhibit. Like, I know, I know. I, yeah, it's and it's really about our weirdness with death. Let's move over to Romania. There's something called the Mary Cemetery, and this there's this guy. His name's Stan Ion Patras Ion. Who knows? He was a local wood carver <laughs> who apparently loved gossip, and so when a town resident would die, he would carve them a wooden cross for their grave that depicted their life in all its glory, from triumph to tragedy. Oh no! So he, the, this graveyard is really fucking pretty though, because it's filled with these like wildly colored grave markers that often depict scenes from the person's life and sometimes not as commonly the cause of their death. Okay. So this guy died in 1977, but his apprentice is still carrying on the tradition. And so it's just this idea of like creating this, you know, true representation of the departed's life. And Mm. I think about that, of what that would be, like how cool it would be to not just, you know, here lies Joy, she really liked Butterfingers or whatever, you know, but like to see a picture, like what would your gravestone look like? I'd just be worried that it would turn out to be like a beach caricature artist. Caricature artist yeah, yeah, like I don't want it to be a caricature artist right, depiction totally. of like me on a skateboard with totally. like my hat backwards. Because, <laughs> you know, I told him I like skateboarding. Yeah, right, right, right. It, it's not like you know, the most realistic thing, but I think it would just, if there was one tableau, like mm. one image that would be you. 
What the fuck would that be? That's a good question. I mean, it's a cool idea. I think it's better than here lies somebody who was a father. Right, right. I think it would have to be done from a personal point of view. You know what I mean, though? Like... That seems kind of odd to go to someone and be like, so what was Joya like? Well, yeah, she But that's her. what like priests and rabbis do at every yeah. funeral. I think we've talked about this before. Where right, I think that's bullshit too. Yeah, it's like, so what was he like? Oh, he, he liked hamburgers? Yeah, great. Uh, John liked hamburgers. Everybody, yeah, and then everybody, everybody laughed like, oh. because they're like, oh, he did. He, he sure loved, loved those hamburgers. Those hamburgers. <laughs> I think mine would at least have like a finger gun and a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, I think you should definitely. It's you like... Yeah. (laughs) And there should be like a sound that is associated with it and it's a snap. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Hey. Oh, God. (laughs) Scootily doot. Scootily doot. (laughs) Just like as you're walking around, you're like mourning your your mother and like nearby, you hear Joya scootily (laughs) doot. Yeah, I would have, I would definitely have just like, a hidden boombox yeah. in my grave, just like well, that, always scootling. I think it was in the movie Toys with Robin Williams. Oh God, like I, yeah. his character's dad was buried with a barrel of laughs, oh. which like so like they go to like visit his grave and there's like this cackling laughing coming from the grave. That'd be like, mine. I wouldn't want to be that annoying though. Right. That. But just it was a like subtle hint that I'm there. Yeah, and and, and that you lived a life of silliness and, yeah. and enjoyment. One hundred percent. Yeah. So there's this one graveyard, Khalid Nabi, that is located in northern Iran. And it's become a tourist attraction because about 600 of the site's grave markers resemble erect penises jutting forth from the soil. Oh, my God. And others look like, apparently, according to this article, they claim that the others look like the outline of women with huge titties. But I don't think so. I I can see the dicks, though. (laughs) And some people will say, like, archaeologists will say that, no, no, those grave markers, they're just supposed to be designed to look like, you know, men who are wearing turbans. But I'm like, they look like dicks. They're like mad skitty. They have a distinct like there's head. no no <laughs> yeah. mistaking so you just have this field of dicks <laughs> i mean there's an obsession that human beings have had since the beginning of time yeah and like what's in a life just a lot of dicks <laughs> then there's the village of dargovs which is on on a hillside in russia and from a distance it looks like just basically a bunch of stone huts on this like beautiful grassy hillside cool. but they're actually mausoleums which were built by the native people in the 17th century legend has it that a plague had ravaged the community and so the residents had to build these little mausoleums oh. you know the houses to to quarantine the people but then they later just like acted Turned as mausoleums into... too because well, one would assume the people inside died yeah. and, but it's just you know it's creepy because you see these cute little like could be some bed mm. and breakfasts but yeah. actually it's just oh, no. fucking mausoleums this one's fucking interesting this is in Yekaterinburg located in the Ural Mountains it's the fourth largest city in Russia, but it's and it's known for metal processing and machine work, but it is also known for organized crime. Mm-hmm. So some of the region's most notorious mafia bosses are buried in an alley in this cemetery with massive black marble tombstones that are laser etched with photorealistic portraits of the gangsters oh in their God. prime. <laughs> and beneath the pictures of the gangsters are descriptions of their skills like expert in knife throwing. What? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like an avenue of the stars, but... Mafiosos, I guess. Wow, yeah. like Jimmy the Hammer. Totally. And it's like, he was really good at hammering heads. Right. But I mean, what do you do? I, I, it seems weird to spe- like specifically make an area for the mob bosses. Yeah. At the same time, you're like, I guess there are people out there that want to honor these Well, people. I guess that speaks to how organized the crime is <laughs> right. in that area. Oh, God, this one's fucking interesting. There's the Chinese cemetery that's located in Manila in the Philippines. This is known as the Beverly Hills of the Dead. Oh, Ugh. wow. It was, so Beverly Hills. Yeah, that's right. It was there in front of me. I can't. <laughs> so the cemetery was built during the Spanish colonial period. And Chinese folks are who are not Catholic, right? They are forbidden from being buried. So they would often use, they would build these mausoleums. Okay. And mausoleums were often used as well because of the humid climate. So... So yeah. that's just a way to bury somebody above ground. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think to th- I think some of my family's burned in a mausoleum. But oh, yeah, really? I think it's just I don't know if it's more religious or if it's just another thing. Mm. Basically in this Chinese cemetery, these rich Filipinos, they built these fancy mausoleums for their dead family members. So in keeping with the tradition, they they're equipped with like beds and bathrooms and other conveniences for the dead to use. And of course, the buildings are so fucking big that in a lot of cases, living relatives have also moved into them to save money. Oh, man. <laughs> like, you have a bathroom, you have a bed. Why are we hell? living here? What yeah. are we, we're already paying rent. 
Which is like I That's don't know what crazy. my my biggest issue is not the fact that the people are moving into them. It's the idea that like dead fucking people need beds and bathrooms when there's so many homeless yeah. folks in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're That's so a really good wealthy. Point. <laughs> well, I'm just also thinking like, it's like, oh, that would be so weird to like live near a dead person. Then it's like my grandfather's ashes were in my grandmother's house, like growing up just on mantle, the shelf. Right? Yeah. yeah. And like, I was like, oh, there's his ashes. Like, I guess... That's a mausoleum, her house, yeah. you know, in a way. Totally. They look really fancy. They look fancier than a lot of the places yeah, I've lived. Yeah, I totally get being like, why should we only hold our dead yeah. in this beautiful place? Totally. What, what I want to know about the bathrooms is, do they have plumbing working or plumbing, plumbing <laughs> water? Yeah, I honestly don't know if it's for show, if it's a decoy, but mm. if real live people are moving in, <laughs> right, then it probably then. has some kind of... Although that's weird, too. You're like, so then who charges you rent? Yeah. Is there rent here? Do you, you buy it? continue... I don't know if you don't keep paying a cemetery to like house a dead body. I don't know, but you centuries. aren't taking up space, right? Yeah. I thought you just bought a plot. I think and you then buy you a just, plot, of, plot of land yeah. and then that you just and own that. Like I know my dad's got his thing all set up, which is so, another weird fucking thing to be yeah. like, well, let me just get this all set up for when I kick the bucket. But better that than to leave you all with like, oh, what do we do now? Yeah. Like, what did he want? Dead body. Yeah, totally. Well, if you found it weird to potentially live next to some corpses, let me finish off my little list with New Lucky Restaurant Uh-oh. in Ahmadabad, India. Now, the owner, Krishnan Kuti, he bought an old Muslim cemetery with about a dozen graves in it, and he decided to open a cafe where Uh-oh. you can eat with corpses. Wait, eat with them? Yep, near them, in the same room. Now, each of the grave areas is blocked off with waist-high iron fencing that I guess you just, like, see from the sidelines. But then the rest of the space is filled with tables. So every morning, (laughs) Kuti and his staff, they wipe down the graves, they replace the flowers on them, and then they open for business. And apparently, he's doing very well financially, and patrons don't seem to mind the corpses. They don't mind it? It's not like a selling point? Or is it a tourist? (laughs) Right, exactly. What kind of food is he serving? He bought the... Indian food? Indian food? Yeah, I don't know. Traditional? (laughs) (laughs) Not the point, Jeff, not the point. (laughs) But just the idea that he was like, well, I bought this land, but I got to keep it open. Something commercial, right? Because you're not getting any money from that that Well, it's better than like what they did in Poltergeist, where it's like, you only moved the tombstones. Oh, right, because it was like an ancient burial. (laughs) Yeah, it was like an ancient Indian burial ground where this like modern suburban house is built. And then like they wind up like digging up a pool at the end and like there's there's, like all these corpses and they're like they go to like the realtor and he's like you only move the tombstones (laughs) it's like that's why all this weird shit's going on if you're gonna do that that should be the biggest selling point because there's plenty enough people out there that are i don't know why because it's like there are many cemeteries out there if someone really wanted to get their kicks there they could just go have a picnic have a fucking cemetery (laughs) picnic they we watch movies at the hollywood forever cemetery yeah (laughs) Yeah. i would imagine it was probably more of a financial thing like i want a restaurant but all i have is this corpse this is my land let me turn it into i mean look people go to the heart attack cafe in places like that where it's like right like give you the themed, biggest burger of your fucking life. They like have like IVs and stuff, and yeah. like they're they're proud of how many people have died in their restaurant. But it's like the the gimmick is something fucked up, yeah. and people are into it. Uh, is yeah. definitely like a, a a thing with restaurants. <laughs> I wouldn't go there. I would give it a poor Yelp review. Yeah, I mean if if they're putting out really good food, I might go. <laughs> God damn it. So Edward Scissorhands is given a waterbed in this movie. Oh, let's talk really Worst quickly. Worst idea ever. Like, I know that that's a winky, funny moment, but it's like, you fucking dumb dumb. It really is, like, amazing how stupid this family is. Yeah. And But anything that Scissors could do comes up in this movie in a yes. way that I thought was hilarious, it, where it's yeah. like, Scissors, they cut hedges, they cut hair, they cut... There were many other examples. Oh, yeah, I was chopping broccoli, he chopping was, fucking... Yeah. Helping with the cooking, all chopping that Chopping broccoli. But anyway, so the waterbed. It was actually first invented in the 1800s, and it was called Dr. Arnott's Hydrostatic Bed. Woo! And it was actually made to alleviate bed sores in invalids and anybody else who was bedridden for long periods of time. Oh, it makes so much more sense. Right? It didn't become like a gimmicky thing like what we think of until like the 70s and the 80s. That was the time. That was the time for things to get real gimmicky. (laughs) Very, very gimmicky. Unlike today, where we have no gimmicks. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, we're just shamelessly like, we want your money. Yeah, yeah. It is a bit more upfront, up <laughs> I guess. But yeah, just thinking about it like an early form of the Tempur-Pedic, where it's like a bed that's trying to form to your specific yeah. back is kind of an interesting thing. The problem, though, is because I had a waterbed and I was all about it. I, I was very much a product of that cheesy yeah. time. <laughs> so, and it was great because... Also, as a kid, you're like, yeah, the fun of like, yeah, I like going on rides. It was fun, but you would always inevitably you sink, right? So then you'd end up adding like more pressure to your joints because it's not even. Whereas a Tempur Pedic, it's it's actually like forming to you. You're basically just Mm -hmm. making the thing sink, and then you're just still crushing your. Because you have more weight in the center of your body than in your arms and legs. Not even just the leak factor, which is a right. nightmare. A nightmare. <laughs> Did that ever happen to you? And not in a not big like that, but there would be times where it's like if you had cats, oh you have like boy. one tiny little claw. But more than that, you also just like lose things on the side because it's just a giant water balloon inside the frame. Uh-huh. So uh, like countless socks and you know small things that would just get hidden underneath the pouch forever. And it wasn't until I moved out that I'd be like, oh, I've been searching for this chapstick for ages. (laughs) Yeah, well, the modern waterbeds, first of all, they're usually heated, which I didn't even think about that. Like, water can get cold, and your body isn't going to heat a whole waterbed. Oh, that heat was great. You know, I bet it was amazing. Awesome. And then most waterbeds nowadays have, like, partitions and other things in it so that you don't get, like, the full wave action that you think of, like, in the movie. Sure. That was, like, an older and pretty rare version of the waterbed called the free-flow waterbed, which is just, like, a giant bag of water that you lay on. Yeah, totally. Because they have the, like, combo ones now, I think, right? Or, Or maybe not now, but one of the next iterations was that it was, like, Part mattress, yeah, part water yeah. Bed, so it's it definitely like combo stuff, yeah. so that you don't just like hop on and like. Whoa. I feel like. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> How am I supposed to blast off to Sleepy Land if I'm on a roller coaster? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the waterbed falling out of favor was a combination of just all of the reports of it fucking up your joints and your yeah. back and your alignment and all that kind and of stuff. And to but move then, it, you would have to like drain it right. and then like How fold it up. Oh my you god! You have the IKEA's of the world makes it insanely easy to like mm. move your shit around and then not just the water itself but when it came in it's sort of like a you know old-timey tv cabinets it was like such a fucking production right. you know, a whole headboard made of wood a lot of the times <laughs> so yeah it was a you know that was when you're not planning on leaving for yeah. 20 years <laughs> it's it, it seems like a weird idea in short i really miss my water bed you guys <laughs> like vincent price he's the best you know he's one of those i mean okay obviously guys to give you some context he's the creator in this he's the guy who made edward scissorhands mm-hmm. and is he called the creator i think they call, yeah the, the inventor the inventor mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah however you want to right put it. but vincent price is one of these people that you know obviously way way before our time but is so ingrained in my head as being the master of horror or whatever so i just wanted to do a mini dive on him and he actually had a really fucking interesting life and career so he was born in 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. I didn't realize. I assumed he was either English or some kind of like North Atlantic. I figured uh, Transylvania. I figured right. he was born right. in a castle. But I was like, born in St. Louis? My, my, yeah, my. Wow. He had a pretty fancy pants upbringing. So he was raised in a wealthy home by his father, Vincent, who was the president of a candy manufacturing company. What? Fuck. I know. God. Vincent Price attended a private St. Louis country day school. He earned a bachelor's degree in history and language from Yale. He's very well spoken. Oh, totally. I mean, it makes sense. But then he moved on to the University of London, where he studied history and art at the Clotald Institute. It's like, okay, fucking bouge, bougie McBoogerson. <laughs> he had some pretty good success on stage, but that eventually led to a film career in the 30s. And early on, he was doing a lot of really heavy dramas, but he became, you know, inextricably linked to horror after he appeared in the classic House of Wax in 1953. He played the, you know, vengeance-seeking wax sculptor at that time. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, that was later remade into the Paris Hilton one with like Alicia Cuthbert. Oh, that, and I was going to say, I knew Alicia Cuthbert was in it. Yeah, Paris totally. Hilton was in that? 
oh yeah and she gets killed and it, you know, she's in lingerie when she gets killed and that was the selling point mm. a lot of people were like going to that movie to see Paris Hilton be murdered right. <laughs> you're like yeah you did it to yourself lady but back um, then Vincent Price <laughs> yeah. was the Paris Hilton of his day that's right he was the bad guy right yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he he ended up he appeared in movies like The Mad Magician and then he earned cult status with the original The Fly in 1958 mm-hmm. I didn't even know he was in that he was in The Fly Returns and stuff but then he in the 60s he had this he started this collaboration with Roger Corman on a series of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations so they did like House of Usher Pit in the Pendulum and Ooh. stuff like that then moved on to these make these like super over the top James Bond spoofs so he was in Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine oh my god <laughs> and the follow-up Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs which is just like what? blatant exploitation films what is right? the Bikini Machine <laughs> Sounds like probably an opportunity to just have bikini-clad chicks running about. I would think. <laughs> he was also the arch-villain Egghead on Batman, the the Adam West Batman in, the, in 1966. Oh, the villain was called Egghead? Yeah, did you know there was an Egghead No, villain? I only know Eggman from Sonic, yeah. but I don't really <laughs> know Egghead. Eggman, <laughs> fuck. Okay, so in the 70s is when he started making the transition to voiceover, mm. right? So it was in 1981, he began this eight-year stint as the host of this PBS series, Mystery, which like it showcased a series of famed horror stories. Tim Burton was a huge fan of his growing up, and he actually he had this like short film called Vincent. No. It was like an early claymation like before, before Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh. It's like a little boy. You mean like Nightmare a, Before Christmas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that correction. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But it was basically like an opportunity to pay homage to him there. And then, of course, he was he appeared in Edward Scissorhands. So, yeah, yeah. Which that's awesome, right? Like how often do you actually get oh. the opportunity to have one of your idols appear in your shit? That must have been a genuine dream come true. Yeah. For It seems like in so many ways this movie was everything that Tim Burton ever wanted to do. Totally. Which makes sense why he's like, this is the most personal work mm-hmm. in my life. Including working with his idol. That's totally. great. The thing that I remember and perhaps you remember the most about Vincent Price is his delightful monologue in Michael Jackson's Thriller. Thriller. Let's take a listen, guys. Foulest dentures in the air, the funk of 40,000 years, and grisly goons from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. And though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver. For no mere mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. (laughs) It is the quintessential horror laugh. Oh, God, yeah. Like anytime someone says maniacal laugh, that's what they mean. They mean Vincent Price's <laughs> maniacal laugh. In Michael Jackson's thriller. Just kidding. Um, yeah, but you had mentioned that, that you know, Edward Scissorhands was his last appearance in film. And then unfortunately, he, he succumbed to lung cancer in 1993. He was 82 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a life. I liked 80. that throughout all of that, in terms of the evil, sinister characters that he played, he had this to say. He says, I don't play monsters. I play men besieged by fate and out for revenge. Ooh. Besieged by fate? Well, that's why he's so successful. Is he wasn't just like I'm an evil man. Yeah, I have like a pathos and an actual. (laughs) (laughs) Right, you see the humanity of why. I didn't realize that he was really at the forefront in terms of you know supporting the LGBT community because yeah. So he has this daughter named Victoria, and she wrote a book, Vincent Price, a daughter's biography, and she herself is openly she's out Uh and she was giving an interview that was promoting her parents newly re-released cult classic cookbook because he was also of course a fine arts collector he was a chef he like printed these books about cuisine of course he was a renaissance man yeah he was a renaissance man but so she was talking about how she couldn't understand like how much her father's sexuality whatever it may be was like openly discussed and analyzed by people like how many times people would come up to her and be like so what's the deal is he bisexual or you know in the same way that you would talk about the weather or something like that uh-huh. and I do feel like that's something that celebrities in general have to deal with like somehow your private life is just open for everybody because right. you happen to enter into the public sphere she herself being from the LGBT community she acknowledges that there's this like deeply rooted for wanting some kind of like history and having heroes and you know personal connections to the past Mm -hmm. so I could totally understand someone like Vincent Price who's this 
idol in a lot of ways or he's mm-hmm. this icon people that are a part of the LGBT community being open about that or like wanting to know like what's the deal like as right. a means of validation in right. a kind of like, way is this great man who people love uh, yeah. like am I a part of that I mean I think that that is an important thing but then mm-hmm. being the daughter of someone like that you're like well, it's none of your fucking business right. what he's doing right? right so it kind of you know with great power becomes great responsibility type of thing when it comes to celebrity I think now according to Victoria she says you know she's as close to certain that her dad had intimate relationships with men and at the very least was completely completely open and supportive of the LGBT community. Cause like they lived across the street from rock Hudson uh, and had a lot of gay friends growing up. Like they never said the word gay though. It was just the thing, mm-hmm. you know, like, which I could imagine being so weird because it still is at a time where rock Hudson was fucking closeted beyond right. all belief. Mm-hmm. Then like, so Vincent price was in a one man show in 1977 that was called diversions and delights. And he played Oscar Wilde, who was obviously openly gay and oh. like a huge figure in the LGBT community early on and this was supposed to really rebuff the anti-gay Anita Bryant efforts are you familiar with Anita Bryant no this is one of those figures that I'd always known I knew that she was kind of this like conservative asshole but I didn't know why because it was Uh the 70s and I'm an (laughs) 80s kid whatever so Anita Bryant was this like she was a singer she was a former Miss Oklahoma beauty pageant she was also a former brand ambassador for the Florida Citrus Commission which fucking marketed you know, orange oranges, <laughs> but she became super known for being like an outspoken opponent of gay rights. And she had this save our children campaign in the seventies. This was a direct response to the local ordinance in Dade County, Florida, that was supposed to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So she was just an asshole. She was just an anti-gay asshole that mm. was like super outspoken about it. And this one man show was a means to kind of rebuff that that was happening. And Vincent Price actually said that Oscar Wilde had already written a play about Ms. Bryant, a woman of no importance. <laughs> ah, winky poo. Well, yeah. Wow, I knew nothing about that aspect of his life. Not and at all. What a fucking great guy. Like, Yeah, exactly. Well, and of having this whole move from, you know, stage to film to then being this, you know, gay icon in a yeah. lot of ways. He was an early advocate who joined PFLAG, who's the parents and friends of lesbians and gays. He was an honorary board member of PFLAG, and then he was like one of the first celebrities to do you know public service announcements that were supposed to quell the public fears of AIDS so imagine when AIDS first happened it Mm. was you know people were dying like crazy and it was such a quote-unquote gay disease that to have like you need these figures and one quote that uh, his daughter said that I liked is he married a bisexual woman who was British actress uh, Coral Brownhead uh, Brownend I don't know Brownend that's weird and everybody assumed their marriage was a fraud it wasn't a fraud it was a totally sexual relationship but they were two people with very open-minded approaches as to what life should look like and that to me people who lived this truth in all aspects of their lives they should be heroes to every community and i was like i fucking agree with you and good for you amen 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 vincent (laughs) amen i will at least say i know that you were like really stoked about this movie and thought that it was like a masterpiece i didn't i don't have any like issues with it but i don't (laughs) think i ever need to see it again Yeah, I guess the reason that I had that reaction was like Beetlejuice is such a fun time, but I feel like, I don't know, in that way that like Tim Burton was speaking about feeling like an outsider, I related to that and like what this was doing enough. I'm not a huge fan of the movies he's made mostly since then, Yeah, but this one I think is him at his best. Yeah. What are we doing next week? Oh, Gremlins. Oh yeah, we're doing Gremlins. Yeah, another movie that you didn't really love. (laughs) I just, you know, leave it where it lies. There's some movies you just leave them where they lie. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at oh that's a thing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And we will see you all next week. You guys week. have an awesome week. Bye. Bye.